0: Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing. So 2 Chronicles chapter 23 is where we're picking up at. Uh, last week we are uh, last week we had Joash being saved from the clutches of Ahaziah. Ahab and Jezebel's daughter is now married into Judah's uh, royal throne room. And we had a line from David, Solomon, Rehoboam, Asa, Jehoshaphat, Jehoram, and now Ahaziah is sitting on the throne. She took over the throne. She thinks she killed all of David's children, but one of them got away. A common biblical theme as Moses got away in the from the Pharaoh when he was trying to kill all the Jewish babies. And then you had Jesus, of course, getting away when Herod was trying to kill all the Jewish babies. So there's a thing with evil liking to kill Jewish babies and going after that. But here we have another story that's very similar. We have Joash being saved and hidden away. Second Chronicles 22, he was hidden with them in the house of God for six years while Athaliah reigned over the land. So this evil false queen rules. It sounds like a Disney movie. For six years, she rules over this situation. And the evil queen is, is sitting there. The word Athaliah means affliction. In an unknown, like the affliction of the Lord is how we would read Athaliah. Uh, Jehoiada means Jehovah knows. And he's the husband of Jehoshabith, who hid Joash as a baby. So you have a priest at the temple that sneaks this baby away, puts him into hiding, and six years later, of course, the baby is six years old. So in the seventh year, verse 1, Jehoiada strengthened himself. So the seventh year here, the idea is he's going to make a political move by gathering alliances to the court. There's a lot of people that don't like Athaliah, um, and made a covenant with the captains of hundreds, Azariah, the son of Jerom, Jer- Jeroham, Ishmael, the son of Jehohanan, Azariah, the son of Obed, Massaiah, the son of Adaiah, Elishaphat, the son of Zikri, and they went throughout Judah and gathered the Levites from all the cities of Judah and the false, the chief fathers of Israel, and they came to Jerusalem. So he makes a covenant with these, this group of men. All of these names, unlike Athaliah, have attributes of God in them. And so they, the names of all the, the, the versions of Jehovah and Jehovah's attributes, whenever you see a Jewish name that starts with Ja or Ya, that's at the beginning. If you, whenever you see an aim, a name that ends with Ah or Ja, then you have Jehovah somewhere in there. Um, in, in essence, if you go through the names in verse 1 and 2, it's helper, compassionate, hearer, graced. Helper, which is a popular name, serving, working, adorned, judge, and memorial, memorable. Uh, It's easy for the priest to sit back and to teach and do something at the temple, but instead the priest sees there's something that needs to be done here. We have to make the kingdom right. We have to fix this situation. So there is a war for the heart of Israel, right versus wrong. God's word blesses the seed of David, which now is represented by a six-year-old kid or a seven-year-old. Then all the assembly, assembly made a covenant with the king in the house of God. And he said to them, behold, the king's son shall reign as the Lord has said to the sons of David. Interesting that uh, Jehoiada makes a covenant before he reveals the son. And so it's like he gathered them together to learn a secret, but he didn't really tell them what the secret was. And they get there and they see that the secret is made known. Athaliah's reigning because they don't know any other option. And part of the revelation of the son is that all of these good people in Israel realize they have an option to Athaliah. She's not the only one that can sit on that throne. And a lot of people live under tyranny or the tyranny of affliction or sin because they simply don't know any better. They haven't seen a better option. They've never met the son and they've never seen what God has for them. So here's the plan. Verse four, this is what you shall do. One third of you entering on the Sabbath of the priests of the Levites shall be keeping watch over the doors. One third shall be at the king's house and one third at the gate of the foundation. And all the people shall be in the courts of the house of the Lord, but let no one come into the house of the Lord except the priests and those who, the Levites who they serve. So this is the game plan. At the changing of the, 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 um, cycles of people that would be in when you have a changing of the guard, so to speak, it doesn't raise any alarms when you have lots of people. Cause you got the people going out and the people coming in and he has three particular locations, the temple, the Royal throne room, and the gate of the city that are all going to kind of be locked down. And a big part of this is because they recognize Athaliah has kind of an iron grip on the city. They may go in for their holy, but all the people that shall keep the watch of the Lord and the Levites shall surround the king on all sides. They're going to protect this little baby. Every man with his weapon in hand and whoever comes into the house, let him be put to death. You are to be with the king when he comes in and when he goes out. So Sabbath's change of the guard is going to be here. It's fairly clear that the priests are all on board with this, that Jehoiada and the temple recognize the evil that Athaliah has brought to the country. Um, So they make some wise planning. They don't just go out and go cavalier into this situation. It's dangerous. They don't have a death wish, so they make very careful decisions as they plan how to announce the new king to the country. Verse 8 says, So the Levites and all Judah did according to all that Jehoiada the priest commanded. And each man took his men who were to be on duty on the Sabbath with those who were going off duty on the Sabbath for Jehoiada, the priest had not dismissed the divisions. And then Jehoiada, the priest gave to the captains of hundreds, the spears and large and small shields, which had belonged to King David that were in the temple of God. So that's going back a ways. The people armed themselves. And I think it's interesting that there's still shields from David that are somewhere hiding out. People arm themselves with their history. God's promises to David is part of what they arm themselves with. They follow the revealed heir of David with the things that David had left them. And you see God's people essentially following after God's promises and literally arming themselves with God's promises. This morning, you went through the armor of God, and you know that in God's kingdom, armor means something different spiritually than it does physically. Then he set on the people... Every man with his weapon in hand from the right side of the temple to the left side of the temple, along by the altar and by the temple, all around the king. They fill the courtyard with people that are there to defend this new king. And this king comes with a promise, and that is the promise of God. Athaliah thinks she's ended the seed of David, but the seed of David has not disappeared. Verse 11, and they brought out the king's son and put the crown on him. And, And again, this is important. God's kings don't put crowns on themselves. They don't anoint themselves. Other people have anointed all of God's kings, and in this case, it's the same situation. Um, it, frankly, that isn't different with Jesus. Jesus comes, and he appears to the world, but we still have to put the crown on his head. We still have to honor him as our king. We have a choice to make. And it also says, gave the testimony. An interesting kind of passage. They gave the testimony and made him king. To give the testimony there is literally they're going through and reading the word of God together. So part of this anointing process is the testimony is a reference to the the first five books of the Bible, the testimony of God. Deuteronomy 17, 18 is particularly, there's a command that the king is supposed to be given the word of God, only he's supposed to write it himself. At age seven, Joash is not old enough to have written out the law of God on his own, but they want to put him on the throne. So they literally give him a copy of the testimony and they are probably saying we're going to just wait for him to write this on his own later. And they made him king. Um, then Joad and his sons anointed him and said, long live the king. Um, this is the anointing and the praise of the kings that solidifies their service in this role. To wish a long life, we've seen in Chronicles that there seems to be an association between the lifespan of the king or the rule of the king and whether or not they're following the Lord. So good kings have long reigns in the book of Chronicles. And what does that make a king that has an eternal reign? So if Jesus is on the throne for eternity, how good is Jesus if you're looking at this through a heavenly perspective? Then we get, they're going to now deal with Athaliah. Verse 12, now when Athaliah heard the noise of the people running and praising the king, she came to the people in the temple of the Lord. She just storms right down there. Like she's thinking she's pretty well established at this point as she has been. She thinks this is her territory because she's been ruling it for a season. And we should note here that as we make the heir of David and put him on the throne of the king, there is an enemy that resists that process. And there's definitely an image here of what this looks like. There is a pretender and a serper. There is a false king that doesn't willingly let go of power in our lives. There's someone who has dominion there that doesn't want to give it up. So there's going to be uh, what you'd think might be a fight, but the way they set this up, there's really no fight at all. When she looked, verse 13, there was the king standing by his pillar at the entrance. And the leaders and the trumpeters were by the king. And all the people of the land were rejoicing and blowing trumpets. The heir of David is back on the throne also the singers with musical instruments and those who led in praise. So Athaliah tore her clothes and said, treason, treason. There's a real contrast here between the people of God singing God's praises and celebrating the true King on the throne and the enemy or evil, just hating this process happening. And the, the, the shouting out of treason while the kingdom is joyful to have the rightful ruler back on the throne, it's, the, the irony is, shouldn't be lost on us that she's actually the one in rebellion against David's house. She's the actual traitor to the throne. But she's been pretending to be in the rightful place for long enough. She's convinced herself it's her throne at this point. And Jehoiada the priest brought out the captains of hundreds who were set over the army, and he said to them, take her outside under guard and slay with the sword whoever follows her the priest had said, do not kill her in the house of the Lord. The house of the Lord is a sacred place. We're not going to execute a civil judgment here. Historically, the law says that for people that have killed other people, that the just consequence for murder, which Athaliah, remember, murdered a lot of people. She murdered anyone she thought would challenge her. But the just sentence for a mass homicidal maniac is to be executed. So there's a certain It's not that Jehoiada in verse 14 is angry or harsh or cruel and you'd say, oh, they're they're killing people in the Old Testament. He's actually executing proper judgment and he's using the civil authorities to do it. And there's a difference between executed judgment that's been carried out according to a law versus just random killing which Athaliah has committed. She has slayed people for her own benefit, for her own hatred, yet Jehoiada is doing something very opposite. Both of them, somebody ends up dead at the other end, but the motive and the heart behind them are very different. If if Joash was sitting on the throne properly, Jehoiada would have never gone out of his way to kill Athaliah. It's that she committed murders, and then those murders need to be executed, or those murders need to be taken care of. So they take her outside. They take this entity that represents kind of sin and rebellion, and they get her out of the temple, and they cast her out, so to speak. And I think this is interesting as an image, too. Hebrews 12, 1 tells us to lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let's run with endurance the race that's set before us. To get sin out of our life is a key part of this transition to put the king on the throne in our life. And we see that here too, as they crown the new king in their life, the old pretender has to get kicked out of that cast out, so to speak. And we have this image of dealing with sin and there is a certain ruthlessness to getting rid of sin. Sin needs to be handled with a certain prejudice, right? And if there's things in our life that are sinful, certain traitorous pretenders sitting on God's throne in our life, they need to be removed forcefully, Um It's interesting when Jesus talks about sin, he says, if there is something that, if your eye makes you to sin, what should you do with your eye? You should cut it out. If your hand makes you sin, you should cut off your hand. There is a certain prejudice to deal with sin that's both Old Testament and New Testament. If there's something taking the throne that shouldn't be there, you have to actually get rid of it and take care of it strongly. And I don't think we're supposed to be literally poking out eyes and hands, but it's better to do that than to be cast into the furnace. And it's better to take Athaliah and get her the heck out of the temple space and execute her in a a just, civil way than it is to have her still be around plotting against the throne of the king. So they don't make the deal here. It says do not kill her in this space, but they do get her out before they take care of it. And they're going to execute her. Um, Or slay that sin. Frankly, if you want to carry out the metaphor, you can go back to Ephesians chapter 6. How do we slay sin? We have a sword. It's called the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. How do you slay sin? How do we deal with sin with a prejudice in our life? We learn the word of God and we put that into our thoughts and it starts to execute the sin in our life and casting it out of our life. So they seized her, verse 15, and she went by way of the entrance of the horse gate into the king's house and they killed her there. I think it's there's also the irony shouldn't be lost that she gets killed by the horse gate. This is where all the horses go in and out. So they take her out to the filthy parts of the city and that's where she's taken care of. She goes where she belongs, where the dirt and the straw and the filth is. Unless it's a really clean horse gate, but I doubt that. All her plans against God's will, God's heir, God's people, all of those plans come to a very quick end. She has actually no authority and no power, even though she thinks she does. She's a bunch of hot air. Verse 16, then Jehoiada made a covenant between himself, the people, and the king, that they should be the Lord's people. And this is after six years of being having idol worship introduced all over Judah. With under Athali. And all the people went to the temple of Baal, and they tore it down, and they broke in pieces its altars and images, and they killed Matan, the priest of Baal, before the altars. Again, this is the civic judgment prescribed in the law. If you have somebody that's worshiping idols and practicing sorcery, the, the judgment of that, according to any civil judge, should be to execute them. And so we see the word killed in verse 17. That's not the word murdered. It's two different words in our language, just like it is in the Hebrew. They don't murder Matan. They kill him. They execute him under a civil law. Uh, he's broken the law, and they take care of it accordingly. So when the anointed heir of David sits on the throne, revival begins in the land. They start their revival by getting rid of Baal. Uh, Baal was a god, but was also there were Baals, plural. And Baal's generally were various human-created gods. All of them had to do with power and wealth and prosperity. If I worship Baal, I'll have prosperity in my life. And that would take a ton of different forms. So that belief um, that success is in Baal and not in the Lord God Almighty, that was the thing that has to go. Um, killing Matan then is according to Deuteronomy 13, they get rid of him that way. So the false worship, if it's left around to fester, uh, will become a problem down the road. So according to the law, you don't let sin fester. Don't let this belief that success is somehow any other place other than God. So the false worship gets executed decisively. Then we get to verse 18. Also, Jehoiada appointed the oversight of the house of the Lord. To the hand of the priests and the Levites, whom David had assigned in the house of the Lord. To offer burnt offerings, those are the sin offerings of the Lord, as it is written in the law of Moses, rejoicing and with singing as it was established by David. I love just this process. When we put the son of David, the heir of David, on the throne that he belongs on, they cast out the pretender that's pretending they have authority, Then they go take care of the the false worship that's out there, and now they replace that false worship with a recommitment to the way that worship should happen according to the Word of God. Uh, A lot of times new believers will try to get the sin out of their life and then they just sit in their living room at night and look at a wall because all those things they used to do for fun are now out of their life. And that's a dangerous way to go into your walk with Christ, because you have to replace that with something. And they do. They replace it with rejoicing and singing, and that's the end result. A purified life is one that is a happy life or a joyful life. Uh, So the oversight of the house of the Lord goes to the people that have been appointed to it. There's a community of people that support the worship of God. And so these images are consistent. Jehovah is careful to do things as it is written by Moses to do them. In the Torah, and David's kingship being added to that, we have a reference to that David assigned to the house of the Lord. If you remember, part of David's contribution was he added singers or a worship ministry to the temple that was in rotations that went 12 different rotations. And then he set gatekeepers at the gates of the house of the Lord so that no one was in any way unclean should enter. The next part of this walk of faith is to mark off territory that's consecrated to the Lord. And again, if we're looking at this as just an image, when the heir of God is on the throne, we set a guard and we set a watch over God's people. There's certain areas that we're going to consecrate. Our lives need to be guarded in a similar way. We're wary of unclean things and we don't allow unclean things into our life, just like they didn't allow them into the temple. Our life is a kind of temple. And again, you're like, Sean, where are you getting that from? Don't take my word for it. It's in the word, 1 Corinthians six 19. Don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? The Bible tells us that our lives are an image of the temple. So when we read about the temple... Put your life in there and replace it as we go. So we set gatekeepers. We watch our life diligently. We let Jesus build our life. Remember in chapter six, nevertheless, you shall not build the temple, but your son who will come from your body, he shall build the temple for my name. We let Jesus build our lives. And that's the the image that we have. We keep watch over this space. It's important. And as we watch over our lives as believers, we're giving or we're anointing or we're consecrating something that's a gift to God. And we're his treasure, he tells us. Then he took captains of hundreds, the nobles, the governors of the people, all the people of the land, and brought the king down from the house of the Lord. And they went through the upper gate to the king's house. And they set the king on the throne of the kingdom. And so all the people of the land rejoiced, and the city was quiet, for they'd slain Athaliah with the sword. The land is set right. They had six dark years, and then on year seven, everything gets set right again. And you see the air of God being put on the throne. True worship is accompanying then with a rejoicing, verse 21, and a quiet. The two great benefits of putting everything right is joy and peace. A lot of times, it's, this is the evidence that you're doing things right, is when you feel a joy and a peace in your life, there's a great calm over everything that there is evidence that you've properly put Jesus on the throne of your life. This is the end result spiritually. Joash is on the throne, but it's not; (laughs) he's not really responsible for being put on the throne. Jehoiada leads this movement to put him there. And in the same way, we have free will when it comes to Jesus. Jesus is there. He exists. He's the heir. He should be on the throne of our life. But God set up a system where we get to choose to put him on the throne or not. All the people of the land rejoicing. It's not just the priests. Everyone benefits from godly rule. And as Athaliah is gone, people are blessed by it. And then, again, the great blessing, I just can't get past this. Again, the blessing of God is to not have drama and conflict. And yet that's all we see when we look in the world. The city was quiet. In chapter 14, when Asa got things right with the kingdom, the, the, the city was quiet. They had peace. Chapter 20, um, Jehoshaphat is put on the throne, and the, the end result is that they have peace. They have years of peace and quiet. And I think sometimes we want more from God, but what more could we ask for than peace and quiet in our life and a, a stability that we can live within? So they slay Athaliah with the sword. Here's the principle that Jesus himself emphasizes that we need to deal with sin and we need to deal with it quite harshly and that we don't hate people, but we do hate sin in our own life and we get rid of it accordingly. So they deal with it. They put it out there. This is a graphic narrative. Uh, It's an equally striking spiritual idea that we do not compromise with sin. We don't spend our life looking for excuses to do things that the Holy Spirit tells us are wrong. Just get rid of those things. Don't let them fester and be in your life. Chapter 24, Joash now takes over. He was seven years old when he became king, and he reigned 40 years in Jerusalem, and his mother's name was Zibia of Beersheba. Uh, Beersheba would be a Jewish town at this point, so Joash did what was right in the sight of the Lord all the days of, this is where other kings will say, all the days of his life, But it just doesn't say that. And because of that pattern, king after king, we should like wake up when it doesn't say that. All the days of Jehoiada the priest. In other words, this seven-year-old had a really good godly mentor. As soon as Jehoiada's gone, things go wrong. And, And it's not all of his days. So with each of the kings, we get an image of Christ. We also get a reminder that these are just images. They're humans that sin and are fallen. They're not perfect, even David. Uh, and Jehoiada took two wives for him as he had sons and daughters. There is a replenishing of the seed of David in that Joash from age seven, apparently, um, is being paired up with women that are that are to make or refill this line of princes. So the the priest provides guidance. He's like a chamberlain. We've seen this before. When somebody's too young to rule, they have strong advisors that pretty much run things. Um, Jehoiada is presented here then as a strong godly influence, and there's an absolute benefit to that. So we start out with some of the benefits or the good things that Joash did. I found it striking how different Joash was in Kings than in Chronicles. From an earthly perspective, Joash is, does a lot of good godly things. In the book of Kings, you could even argue Joash is a godly king. He's one of the good ones. But when we get to Chronicles, the heavenly perspective, it's we're going to finish Joash here today, and he's not one of the good ones by, by any account in Chronicles. And it's one of these kings that's different. From the outside, the external Joash, good king, did good things for Israel, had a 40-year reign Lots of good stuff on the outside, but the heart of Joash wasn't in the right place. And the end result is he wasn't a good king. So there's a spiritual perspective with Chronicles where we start to see through some of these things. There are people that put on a good show, but on the inside, they're not following the king. They're not serving the king. We'll get into that. Verse four. Now it happened after this, after this, that Joash set his heart on repairing the house of the Lord. Again, pick up on the little things. If we know the law, where is our heart supposed to be? Our heart, mind, soul, and strength is supposed to be worshiping God himself. But Joash doesn't set his heart on God. He sets his heart on repairing the house of God. If I can just be a good churchy person and I look like a good churchy person, then I must be a good person. But that's a faulty line of thinking. And I, and I again, I love the Bible doesn't like necessarily point that out to us. It waits for us to learn it together and go through it together. Um, but we should know the law. We should know that this isn't where his heart should be placed in verse four. Then he gathered the priests of the Levites and he said to them, go out to the cities of Judah and gather from all Israel money to repair the house of your God from year to year and see that they do it quickly. However, the Levites did not do it quickly. So the king called Jehoiada, the chief priest, and said to him, Why have you not required the Levites to bring in from Judah and Jerusalem the collection, according to the commandment of Moses, the servant of the Lord, and all the assembly of Israel for the tabernacle of witness? The people of Israel had an obligation to support their temple. It's a, it's, he's right. The commandment of Moses is that they should be supporting this temple with their annual tithe. They disobey or they defied this, For starters, they got rid of Athaliah out of their life, but they're not ready to take on the responsibility of the rightful king and the heir of the throne. The fact that Joash is doing this is really, repairing the house of God is not a bad thing. It's a commandment in the law of Moses. He's right. They're supposed to care for this temple, and they're supposed to have this ongoing resource from the people to do it. But there's a couple things wrong on both sides that, just to pick up on these, first of all, his heart's on repairing a house, not on serving the king. And then he sends people out to Judah, go out to the cities of Judah, gather all from all Israel money to repair the house. He's not supposed to do this. He's not supposed to twist people's arms to give money. This is the equivalent to putting a thermometer on the wall and and from the pulpit saying, we need lots of money to do this thing. And look at how great this thing, look at how wonderful this temple is. But we need all your money to build this temple. But so there's this image of like arm twisting, a really good biblical example of it. Go out and try to raise all this money. Um, But in verse five, notice that the Levites did not do it quickly. He commands quickly. That's the second component of this. Arm twist and arm twist fast. So he wants to move faster than God on doing this temple thing. And again, you could read this at a glance and say, well, this is a good thing. He's trying to rebuild the temple. And in the book of Kings, I think that's the right way to read it. But I got to this and I started noticing all these little clues that we're supposed to pick up on. From a heavenly perspective, we're not supposed to twist people's arms and we're not supposed to try to rush things that aren't there. By the way, we did not go tour the facility this week because I was praying about this going, maybe we shouldn't be rushing things. And you just let the Holy Spirit lead in some areas. And then Jehoiada calls in the priest, and he's all upset that the priests haven't twisted arms enough. And so he has to come up with another solution. For the sons of Athaliah, that wicked woman, had broken into the house of God, and it also presented all the dedicated things of the house of the Lord to the balls. So, Je- Athaliah messed up the temple. And Joash growing up for six years in this temple, that probably really bothered him while he was growing up, as much as a five year old can be bothered. So, he's probably hearing the priests talk about like how the place is coming into disrepair, the, you know, The the basins need to be cleaned and the walls are chipping and everything's, the gold line, the thing is starting to flake off and all those kinds of things. So one of the first things he does when he's seven years old is, well, then we got to fix the building. It's a childlike thought when it comes to religion, that it matters the the kind of the stuff around it and what's going on. So he's come to that age to rule and he gives a very simplistic thing and that fixing the temple must be a good thing. Because wrecking the temple was something evil people do. So it's a good thing to care for it. Verse 5, the priests go around town to town. They go asking for money. Uh, It leaves room for corruption. So the fact that the priests did not do it quickly, they weren't really highly motivated to go arm twist. And good for them in that sense. But there's also this idea that whatever money they were supposed to collect wasn't making its way back to the temple. There's corruption in the priesthood. And how far into the priesthood are we? I mean, we're, we're only a few generations in and look at the corruption that's going on. So Joash discovers age seven that there's corruption, um, that the gifts have not been presented and dedicated to the things of the Lord. So then we come up with method or strategy two in verse eight. Then at the king's command, they made a chest. they set it outside, we're going to call that the love box, and they set it outside at the gate of the house of the Lord. And they made a proclamation throughout Judah and Jerusalem to bring the Lord to the Lord the collection that Moses, the servant of God, had imposed on Israel in the wilderness. Then all the leaders and all the people rejoiced. Awesome. This is great. They probably rejoiced because they also knew that the priesthood was corrupt. They give their money to these priests. The priests just pocket the money. So there's a rejoicing that, hey, there's going to be a different way to do this. And they brought their contributions and they put them in the chest until all had given. Great opportunity to say this. I know we're all here and we all know this. This is part of why we don't pass a plate. It's the same thing as sending your money town to town looking for handouts. And and biblically speaking, it's not a good idea to do that. It's not the way God did it. But so many churches and denominations have gone into this method of asking for money. Some of the worst or most extreme things that I've seen... Um, I, I, joke about the thermometers cause I grew up with them. I went to churches that had little thermometers and as the giving got given, they, they filled up and I always thought they were cute, but they were definitely a, you know, a guilt trip. If that thermometer stayed at the same place for five months, you know, somebody's not giving. I've also seen things where there's tithe police. There's churches that assign people to look at who's giving and who's not. And then they go out and they talk to people. How come your money's not coming into the church? I call them the tithe police. Um, But I've also seen or heard of auto withdrawal systems that you go through membership classes at the church. And once you're a member, part of being being a member of that church is that there's an auto withdrawal um, from your bank account. And that's now you're part of the, you're committed to this church. All three of those are putting a burden on people. And they're what I would call a hard sale. And when you do the hard sale, there's a dread that comes with it. It's like going into an auto dealership when you know that there are those kinds of auto dealers. No offense, Paul. When you go into an auto dealership and you know they're going to give you the hard sale, there's a piece of you, do you know what I'm saying, that just dreads walking in the door. That they're just going to come up and they don't – when they say how can we help you, that's not what they're saying. How many dollars can I get out of you? And you just know it and there's a little bit of dread. So when the people rejoice from this new system, I think it's because they took away these traveling tithe police. And Joash just cleans them out. There's no mediary priests at all between you and God. And when you give money to the temple, you put it in this box. It's there. People know where it is. It's at the door. And when you put money in that box, you know darn well it's going to be used for the kingdom of God. It's going to be used for the things of God. And it's going to, the faithful people then come through. They like this system. The first system was more convenient. You got somebody coming right to your door. You don't have to travel to Jerusalem to give your gift. Yet the second system requires travel and sacrifice to make that gift, right? There's, there, in the first system, there's an expectation of getting more and more from people. And if you got more people giving, you share the cost. You probably give a little less. And in the flesh, that makes a lot of sense. But the number two system is that you trust in God's spirit moving people independently, and the end result is they get more money with method two. Trusting God, not going door to door, and letting people make their own sacrifices is the more effective spiritual system. So Joash sets up this system. This is one of the good things that he did. God's spirit moves amongst the people, and the dread goes away, and it's replaced with all the people rejoiced, verse 10. This is a good thing. Oh, good. We don't have people hitting us up for money every time we go. And I think this is why Jesus got so upset when he saw the money changers in the temple courtyard again. Like throughout the history of God's people, there's a there's this battle between trying to get as much money as you can from people versus letting God move people. I remember the first time we went to CCM and the first time I ever saw this idea where you didn't there was no passing of the plate, there was no hitting people up for money, there wasn't somebody at the end of the aisle shaking the plate in front of you. Ever had that happen? They put the offering plate on a little stick so they can reach in and shake it in front of you. That it, there's a certain like ickiness to all of that The first time I saw it I was like well this is new nobody's hitting me up for money nobody wants anything from me I can just really I can just come and eat the food nobody's gonna hit me up or make me put money in a thing and it was so refreshing I remember just going home going wow nobody pressures me at this place And I think that's, when people rejoice here, that's part of what they rejoiced. You want to be a part of God's work, and that's wonderful, but you also, God knows that sometimes you can give, sometimes you can't, and what a relief it is when that's between you and God, and there isn't some priest running around with a plate, shaking it in your face. So it was, at that time, verse 11, when the chest was brought to the king's official by the hand of the Levites and when they saw that there was much money that the king's scribe and the high priest officer came and emptied the chest and they took it and returned it to its place thus they did day by day and gathered money here's the key in abundance it actually works to just let people deal it's between them and God and it's just dealt with that way there's an accountability here but not to humans and so this idea of just the also the other thing here is notice that it's not just one person collecting the money. There's multiple people doing this. One person is the king's scribe, that's a civic authority, like an accountant. And then there's a second person, the, the representative of the Levites. So you have two people that unload this chest, count the money up, document how much money's there, and make sure it goes to the right place. So there's an accountability system when it comes to the finances. There is a transparency to what's going on here. And day by day, they have to just empty this chest out because it keeps filling up with with resources. So, verse 12, the king and Jehoiada gave it to those who did the work of the service of the house of the Lord. What's that money for? Ministry. And And the work of the house of the Lord is not just teaching or doing the worship. The work of the house of the Lord is the people that repaired the marble, that fixed the sidewalks, the guard people, the watch people at the gate. The musicians that are there, and they and they make a point. They hired masons and carpenters to repair the house of the Lord. When we ask if we had a building and we needed it repaired, we don't expect people to donate their time on that. This is how they make their living. And when you work for the house of the Lord, you should be you know justly compensated for those things. And also those who worked in iron and bronze to restore the house of the Lord, they actually paid their workers. So the workmen labored, and the work was completed by them. That's the result. So they restored the house of God to its original condition and had enough to reinforce it. So they have more than enough money to do it when they use this second method. Spoken to God's people as a congregation. um, Malachi 3.10 Bring all the tithes into the storehouse that there might be food in my house. And now, God, this is the only place in the Bible God invites us to test him. And try me in this, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open for you... Collective you, not you as an individual. I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you such blessing that there will not be room enough to receive it. They have enough to fix the temple, that was the goal, but they also have enough to reinforce it and when they had finished, verse 14, they brought the rest of the money before the king and Jehoiada and they made articles for the house of the Lord, articles for serving and offering spoons and vessels of gold and silver. And they offered burnt offerings in the house of the Lord continually all the days of Jehoiada. Not Joash, Jehoiada. This is great. So again, this is one of the best examples in the Bible of, of how this should work, how it should look when God's people gather together. Um, how they should do it the right way. And and again, this doesn't speak to Joash's spiritual state, but it does say he got rid of corruption in the land and at least straightened out this whole system and how it was going to work. Ultimately, they had human strategies that Joash tried, send people out and get them to arm twist, and it was totally ineffective. But then they do it this other way where they just trust in God's people, they trust in the heart of God's people, and they have more than enough to get done what they need to do, more than enough. So year one... With us, I think we had, just again, for transparency on, on how money works with our little fellowship, year one, we didn't need a lot. Like honestly, the money that Steph and I had, we were tithing our money to Calvary Chapel Twin Cities and we didn't really need too much. We just had extra food in the freezer and we trusted the Lord would bring more food and fill it up. So we did food that first year. Year two, we had enough people coming to where when you're feeding like four or five people in your house, that's something you can just do with what's in the fridge. When you have 10, 15 people coming into your house, suddenly it gets to be a thing. And so when we kept started doing food in year two, that's when we put out our love box. Those of you are regulars, you know, right where that is. Um, and we just put it out. I don't even think we said anything. People would say, what's that for? Can I help out with the food? And we'd just say, yeah, whatever you want to help out with, put it in the box. Um, and so, that became a way in which not only do we have enough for feasting, but we had enough to buy sound equipment and get our little, you know, I talked to Zach and we were like, hey, get us the nicest sound equipment you can get. And Zach cooked us up. So we had enough for that. We continued to grow in size. We always had enough food and enough supplies to cover it. So I'm just testifying this has worked with us. In year four, we started to overflow Um, We used money to rent a space at Anchor and we started to give gifts away. So when we had more money than we needed at the end of the year, we looked at that and we said, okay, how can we support some ministries? So we supported some missionaries. We bought some Bibles for Eastern Europe. We helped to build a church in Africa. I mean, our little fellowship, you guys. More than enough to do what we need to do with that money, but then overflowing out to get ministry to the rest of the kingdom. We then connected with the CCA organization in year four. So now we're, I can identify where the needs are and we can start helping with that. Um, currently, I'll just say financially, and again, we'll be meeting in the winter here to kind of share this with the board. Um, we're overflowing again. Like we're trying to use the money for the ministry and we're just overflowing with it. And, and that's a blessing because it's a great framework for us to say, okay, what's the next step for us and where's that going to be? Um, so it's a real blessing when you just leave that up and you don't do arm twisting. We've never had a day in I think six years now where we felt like we came out, like we didn't have the resources we needed to bless the people that showed up on a Sunday. Isn't that cool? Just we've never had it happen. In six years, you'd think at some point, we've had some weeks where we've had 35 people and you're like, oh my goodness. And we're always like, well, we got enough to do what we need to do. So when we get excited about things, and I think getting into a building is, can be exciting, but it really doesn't matter. And I think we have a pretty unified spirit. on it. it doesn't matter if we meet here or somewhere else. It's simply a tool to get the word of God out to more people and to share it with as many people as we want. So I want to note here, fixing the building wasn't the problem with this situation. It was the heart of the people that were increasingly astray, and especially the priests that were corrupt and messing the system up. And what they had to do is get it between the people and their God again, and then things started to click right. Verse 15, we switch gears. We see the good stuff that Joash did is he got the corruption out of the temple process, and the temple gets fixed. Um, and then here we see that a lot of that was the influence of Jehoiada. Verse 15, But Jehoiada grew old and was full of days, and he died. He was 130 years old when he died. And they buried him in the city of David amongst the kings because he had done good in Israel, both towards God and his house. They took a priest and buried him among the kings. So really, like historically, they're seeing Jehoiada is like not the seed or heir of David, but justly was a shepherd for the nation of Israel to the point where they buried him as a king. So they recognized that he was running the show. The location of his burial shows the honor and influence that he had over the kingdom. Now, after the death of Jehoiada and the leaders of Judah came and bowed down to the king, and the king listened to them. Therefore, they left the house of the Lord God of their fathers and served wooden images and idols, and wrath came upon Judah and Jerusalem because of their trespass. After the good influence is gone, the bad influences show up. Now there's an opening. And there's just this, again, the apostasy of Joash is largely because he doesn't have a backbone. He follows the strongest personality in his life. And when that's a godly personality, wonderful, he does godly things. But when the godly personality is gone, you'll notice that the enemy comes swooping in in that void that's there. And if someone isn't established correctly in their faith, the enemy is happy to do it. Notice how the enemy shows up. It comes and bows down, verse 17. There is a false humility here, a show of humility. And we need to note that when somebody pretends to be humble, that doesn't necessarily mean they're humble. When someone pretends to be holy, that doesn't mean they're holy. Claiming you have a virtue doesn't mean that you have it. But these people come in. In fact, when you get a little authority in life, you should really be wary of people that flatter you when they first meet you. And so when you get your first job where you're in charge of people, watch out for the people that come up with all their flattery. It's not flattery, it's flatulence. Like, think of it that way. Their counsel is not even given a line. Again, the writer of Chronicles doesn't even repeat what they said or how they said it. It's just an agenda that they have. And Joash's faith isn't rooted at this point. It was rooted in Jehoiada's faith. Jehoiada then, at this point, fails to disciple Joash properly. And so when he passes away, he, it looks almost like Jehoiada made all the decisions for Joash. And so for those of us that are parenting or or parenting in a few years, maybe, think about this. Every kid has to get their own relationship with the Lord. It's not good enough to live under your parents' faith. If you live under your parents' faith and then if you're strongly swayed by your parents, you're going to be strongly swayed by other people. At some point, your faith has to become your own, your own decision, your own covenant. If you don't, you're going to fall to whatever influences you come, come at you. And I think this is frankly one of the problems in the American church right now. You have very forceful, overbearing religion. And then when kids go off to college and hear another forceful presentation on how to live and what to think, they just go right to it. They've never learned to think for themselves. They've never learned that it's their own decision. And they follow the most powerful influence in their life. And there's a, 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 an influence that professors or teachers wield at the college level that's significant. There is a power relationship there. If you're easily manipulated to be a Christian, you're easily manipulated to not be a Christian. The thing that's got to go is that manipulation. You have to serve the Lord with your heart, mind, and soul. Joash goes whichever way the wind blows. He's not a leader. And that's the problem. This is going to be his downfall, even though he fixed up the temple. So we pray for each other in this way. We pray that we'll be resolute people that are foundationally firm. That if something happens and we have to part ways, that we won't be like kids in this matter. We're not children. Uh, Ephesians 4, 14. Then we will no longer be immature like children. We won't be tossed and blown about by every wind of new teaching. We will not be influenced when people try to trick us with lies so clever they sound like the truth. We won't be blown around by every doctrine that comes our way. So they, they left the house. They forsook. The, notice that they have to leave the house before they go after false idols. They left the house. They forsook. A shallow faith takes the house of the Lord lightly. It's not significant in their life. And the house of the Lord can be a beat-up, ramshackle temple, or it can be a fixed-up, shiny temple. It's not that. It's that it has to have a significance in your life. It's not how shiny the building is. So there's this loud forcefulness of people needs to be willfully reduced so we can hear the still, small voice of God. All these advisors come, they bow down, the king listens to them, never consults the Lord on things, and the next thing you know, there's images coming right back into the kingdom. That sin creeps right back into our life. Verse 19, yet he sent prophets to them. but He there is God, by the way. God sends prophets to them to bring them back to the Lord, and they testified against them, but they would not listen. So he will listen to human advisors, but he won't listen to the prophets of God and the words of God. So Joash is, he's, really isn't running the show. They wouldn't listen. It doesn't say Joash wouldn't listen. It says they wouldn't listen they are now running the show. It doesn't even matter what Joash says. This is worse than Joash rejecting God himself. He's actually handed over his authority and he's letting other people run his show. And the same thing with weak Christians, it's the same thing. What's worse than them not having the Lord on the throne of their life is they're letting other people have that voice and position that don't deserve it. Verse 20, Then the Spirit of God came upon Zechariah, uh, the word there is grandson, son, heir. It can be any of. It's a descendant of Jehoiada the priest. In reality, this is Jehoiada's grandson, who stood above the people, and he said to them, "Thus says God: Why do you transgress the commandments of God, so that you cannot prosper? Because you have you have forsaken the Lord; He has also forsaken you. So they conspired against him, Zechariah." And at the command of the king, they stoned him with stones in the court of the house of the Lord. So notice that they conspired and then there's a command of the king. It shows a complete fidelity. Whatever this group of nameless people do, Joash is their puppet. He does whatever they tell him to do. This is a weak leader. The overbearing mediators, arm twisters, collectors become a corrupter of God's people. And overbearing mentors will cripple the leadership that's there. So you have just two instances in these two stories. The first story has these corrupt priests that go running around saying, you owe me. (laughs) And then now you've got these corrupt civic leaders that say, you have to do it our way. Both forms are a form of control over Jehoiada. They essentially take God off the throne. But here's the truth. What you owe, you owe to God, not to any human. And here's another truth. You need to do it God's way, not your own way. Or the way of some advisor that says this is the way to do it. So Zechariah stood above. The, the phrase there means a position of authority. Like, likely he replaces Jehoiada. So when it says he stood above the people, it's that he kind of represented the, the people that want to serve God. Um, there, is, there, there is the King Joash. There are these advisors around him, and the, probably including some of those corrupt priests, and then there's the people themselves who actually funded the temple. It wasn't the leaders that funded the temple, it was the people. So you have these different groups. So Zechariah stands above, he represents not only the people, but he speaks on behalf of God. He repeats God's word. It says, came upon there. The Holy Spirit came upon. Um, a great study is to go through the entire Bible and look at how the Holy Spirit interacts with people. This is one of a few different ways. It's In the Hebrew, it's labash. It means to dress, to put on clothing, or to wear something. So it's not like the Holy Spirit's coming out of Zechariah, like he's been filled with it and it's pouring out of him. It's more like he got up in the morning and he put on some clothes called the Holy Spirit, and he's going to go out and represent the Lord in this situation. So he has, likely this is a reference to when he put on the mantle of the high priest. It's the same word uh, that gets used in Exodus 40. The priest shall put on... Uh, Aaron the holy garments and anoint him, sanctify him that he may minister under the priest's office. So when it says he stood above the people and the spirit came upon him, it's likely that he took upon the mantle of high priest. and so he's standing as a representative of God before these people with the spirit of God being put upon him that indicates a dispensation that God has given him rightful authority in this office. He speaks as a man of God. And there's a regard for those who represent God's people that has been put on here. So this starts a pattern where you have a singular man of God standing up against they, uh, where the they presumes authority over God's word and represents it. But who are they? There's no names listed here. It's just this random thing. There's no temple position. There's no formal authority. There's no God anointed Holy Spirit. Verse 17, it's just the leaders of Judah, this mob voice of people that think they know better than God. And beware the nameless leaders. Beware the, well, this is what people say. This is how, what, you know what they say. I don't know who's they. There's a they in verse 18, there in verse 18, two they's in verse 19, a them in verse 20, and two they's in verse. You see the pattern? They, them, there. This is not a spirit of God representing God. This is a spirit of the mob, of the they, them, theirs out there. And it's a forceful presence. Once they ignored Joash's good commands, they they dragged their feet collecting money for the temple, and then they stole the money. That's the them, they, theirs. They, they undermine God's work but now they're actively contradicting God's work and they're giving evil commands to replace the good ones. Jesus has another name for them, they, there. He calls them snakes. Nameless little huddle of writhing humanity that seeks after its own thing. A nameless coil of serpents. John the Baptist calls them snakes too. Likely, The one Jesus speaks of in Matthew, right? This is this idea of the they being the ones that ignore, reject, conspire, and ultimately kill Jesus. The nameless mob. This force of evil on earth that stands against God's people. Matthew 23, go ahead and finish what your ancestors started. The ancestors that maybe Jesus is talking about is this mob that influences Joash. Snakes, you sons of vipers, how will you escape the judgment of hell? Therefore I'm sending you prophets and wise men and teachers of religious law. But you will kill some by crucifixion. You'll flog others with whips in your synagogues, chasing them from city to city. As a result, you'll be held responsible for the murder of all godly people of all time, from the murder of righteous Abel to the murder of Zechariah, son of Barakiah, the person we're reading about tonight whom you killed in the temple between the sanctuary and the altar. What a warning. That means the, the spirit of the them, that mob of religious officiates, the <coughs> snake-eyed sneakiness people, the spiritual experts, the go-betweens, the quote-unquote professionals, they missed it then and they miss it with Jesus. And Jesus actually says, you're accountable for what your mob has done throughout history. You will own all of their sins, starting with this Zechariah in verse 20 that stand up and and was the one guy that stands up for God and for the benefit of the people. So they're puffed up. They have leaven, air, gas. They're not worth much. And thus says God gets put out there. The, The thus says God part's not included in 2 Kings. The chronicler's trying to make a point about this conflict. And they're trying to coach, frankly, Nehemiah on how to lead the people. As they reestablish Israel, what does a good king look like? Well, a good king doesn't listen to the mob. And Nehemiah, great examples of him just saying, I'm going to do what God told me to do. I'm not here to listen to you. And he separates these things, I think in part because this story is part of how he was trained and taught. Verse 22, thus Joash the king did not remember the kindness. Remember the kindness of Jehoiada was that he saved him as a baby. Right? He, he redeemed him. He, he stole him away from evil, made it so evil never landed on him. So he forgets that kindness that God had did for him through Jehoiada. He doesn't remember the kindness which Jehoiada's father had done to him, but he killed his son. Again, that's a, his grandson. He killed his heir. And as he died, he said, the Lord, look on it and repay. So the same spot that Joash has been hidden for six years is the spot where he does this great evil. The same temples that the leaders of that temple stole him away from the harm of the enemy is the same place he he exerts this kind of great evil in killing Zechariah. Ultimately, the forceful humans exert pressure on him and even to the point where he's executing a godly man. So they get rid of this annoying voice of Zechariah, but ultimately there's a long-term reality here and Zechariah knows that. And what he says right before he gets killed is the Lord look on it and repay. The word there is darash. Um, it means require or to seek. And I was blessed by this. Literally, it means to rub something over until it's flat. There's an imbalance Zechariah sees with God's people right now. And he's praying that Lord, the Lord will balance that or bring justice to it. Lord, evil has risen its head. And, and Lord, you need to see what's happening here and then darash it require something of what's going on here. Make it right. There's a debt that's adding up called sin, and Zechariah's heart isn't for revenge. It isn't in bitterness. He simply wants God to see the injustice and darash. Make it right. Do the right thing. For the persecuted, this is really the only prayer that we have. Our, our prayer as a persecuted person isn't to hate or be bitter or to seek vengeance against our enemies, but we leave things in God's hand. We trust God with our salvation. We trust him with, our, with the judgment of evil and right in the world. We don't earn our salvation, and we're not here to claim the judgment of other people either. They earn or don't earn them. That's from God. And so it happened, verse 23. Read. And so it happened. I think one way to read that is, and God does exactly what Zechariah prays for. Justice comes for Joash and it comes for the they, them, right? There's a leveling that happens in the next few verses. God makes this right. Here's how he does it. So it happened in the spring of the year that the army of Syria came up against him and they came to Judah and Jerusalem and destroyed all the leaders of the people from among the people and sent all their spoil to the king of Damascus. Remember, it was the leaders of the people that were the bad counselors. It was that mob of people. So he, they lose all their stuff. The people of Israel seem to be fine. It's the leaders that get attacked by Syria. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And he just sets it right. For the army of the Syrians came with a small company of men, but the Lord delivered a great army into their hand because they'd forsaken the Lord, the God of their fathers, so they executed judgment against Joash. We just saw Asa and Jehoshaphat have the small army and then take on a massive army and win. But now God totally flips that. Now Israel has the huge army and the Syrians have the really small troop and the Syrians win the battle. That should have been a huge signal to the Israelites. Once Israel was the winner in that situation, now they're getting beat in the same situation. That should be a huge thing. At one point in my life, I was winning these battles, but now I seem to be losing all of these battles. Where is my heart? How, how do I change that tide? So they executed judgment against Joash. Again, the phrasing there of the judgment isn't that the Syrians came with this wild um, rabbit attack thing. They came and they actually executed a civic judgment against Joash. They made things right is the wording there. Verse 25, when they had withdrawn from him, for they left him severely wounded, his own servants conspired against him because of the blood of the sons of Jehoiada the priest, and they killed him on his bed. Remember, the leaders were all gone, so all he got left now are the house servants, the people. So he died, and they buried him in the city of David, but they did not bury him in the tombs of the kings. Again, where they bury him is a relevant point about how we should read these stories. Joash's waffling and weak leadership doesn't make him more friends at the end of the day. It makes him the wrong friends. And it makes everyone around him an enemy because he doesn't do anything in the name of the Lord. Therefore, he's not worth following. His own servants conspired against him. There is a, he starts with compromised worship. Now his soldiers are dying. Now his own household is against him and everything falls apart. And, it, and, and if anything from Chronicles, from the he- heavenly perspective, we should see the spiritual overlay on top of all of this. When you follow the Lord, everything seems to work and click. And God brings you through trials and tests successfully. When you're not serving the Lord, there's another side to that equation. You're left to the whims of the world. The word wounded there is a disease that has been caused by wounds. Uh, Verse 24, it seems those wounds are festering or rotting. Uh, In other words, he gets injured in battle, but then he comes back and he's kind of bedridden and those wounds aren't healing. They've been infected in some way. And then they killed him on his bed. What's interesting is, again, the rubbing or the the leveling of things that was prayed for by Zechariah. Remember, Joash was a baby. He was lying in a cradle when Athaliah was going to kill him. So it's an interesting symmetry that the way he gets killed is he's on his bed and the servants, instead of stealing him away and saving him when he was powerless, it's his servants that actually kill him in a bed when he's powerless. It gets made right. That blessing of salvation is taken away. Uh, They didn't bury him in the tombs, uh, so he wonderfully restores the temple, but he isn't even done enough. His works aren't enough to get him buried with his fathers or go to heaven. He did great works, but his heart was in the wrong place. He reaps what he sows. So this is a warning to us, to Ezra's people when they wrote Chronicles. This is a deep warning, a dire warning. Your works don't save you. You can actually build an entire church and still not be right with God at the end of your life. So again, it doesn't matter how many good things you perform or things you do. You can't act your way into heaven. You can be an actor and Jesus calls you a hypocrite. You can't act your way into heaven. It has to be for real. So there's no record of Joash repenting at any point in his life. We get that with David. We get that with Jehoshaphat. We do not get the act of repentance with Joash. That seems to be a separating factor. If there's no repentance, there's no salvation. You don't get buried with your fathers. The debt gets paid unless you ask for God to pay the debt for you. No matter what you've done, the debt that has to be paid gets paid. There is a leveling or a leveling that happens. So we get Zechariah, one of the first martyrs of the Bible, And we get a strong warning against this this idea of faith by proxy. Just because he had a good father figure in Jehoiah doesn't save Joash. Just because he did good things, it it doesn't save him. At the end of the day, he has a weak character, and he never resolves to commit and consecrate his life to the Lord. So verse 26, we just get a record of those who are conspiring. These are the ones who conspired. It's interesting that the nameless they-them mob does not get their names in the Bible. But in the book of Chronicles, the heavenly perspective, these people do get their name in the Bible. And they get rec- recorded for all of eternity. Their names are in the word of God. So these are the ones that conspired. The word conspired there is not what the evil connotation of like traitors conspiring against their king. The word there actually means tied together. These are the ones that united. So they came around what was right and they united against him. Uh, Zabad, which means he endows, the son of Shimeath, which means to report or echo, the Ammonitis, Jehoshabad, which means Jehovah has endowed, the son of Shimrith, which means vigilant, the Moabitis. So reported as Gentiles, right? They both have Gentile parents. The king of Israel doesn't serve. God's going to use other people to do it. A key principle. We don't test the Bible. The Bible tests us. And in this idea, like it's not Joash's Jewishness that's going to save him. God will use Gentiles to make things right if he has to. So, level one, the first two names, God gives both his report, which he has. He's given us his word. And vigilance. Those two things are tied together. The report and the vigilance are tied together. And they stand watch as tools over this. God's word and our vigilance bind together against weakness and backsliding. So this is, these are the ones who came together to, to make this right. Level two, the next two names, God reminds us of the rubbing of the level with two descendants of the enemies of God, Gentiles. And he uses both of these. Jehovah has endowed a vigilance on his people. So it's not necessarily our village vigilance, it's the vigilance God gives. So if you want to pick those names apart, there's different ways to do that. Uh, but at the end of the day, God can use a Moabitus and an Ammonitis for his purposes. And God's not limited to using Jews for his work on earth. Then we finish up with verse 27. Now concerning his sons and the many oracles about him and the repairing of the house of God. Indeed, they're written in the annals of the book of Kings. Go, Go read Kings if you want to hear about all the good stuff Joash did. Then Amaziah, his son, reigned in his place. The interesting thing is that Chronicles acknowledges that they're skipping a bunch of stuff about Joash because from a heavenly perspective, it just doesn't matter. All of those good things Joash did absolutely have no standing because at the end of the day, he didn't serve the Lord. So we're back to the main thread. Notice that it says concerning his sons in verse 27, the, the line of David is now replenished. At the end of the day, that's the one thing Joash did. Is Joash had ba- babies that are in the line of David, and now the, the seed of David could move forward. So we're back onto that thing. And we'll get to the next chapter and we'll talk more about Amaziah uh, who is now reigning in his place. And we'll pick up there next week. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the lessons that are here for us to have. Um, Thank you for the way in which you've given models and examples of various personalities in the Old Testament that we can read. We can look at and we can learn from. And Lord, thank you for both Kings and Chronicles, that we get two different perspectives on these people. And Lord, help us to give help to give that give us wisdom through that, that we can see people through an earthly lens, but we can also try to see people through a heavenly lens and what you see when you look at our lives. So Lord, help us to be rigorously going after our own hearts, Lord, that we may make the mistake or the error of of thinking that or following strong Christians and thinking that that saves us, Lord, and we can make the error that we can do things on our own strength, and Lord, Joash fell into both of those, and at the end of the day, it wasn't quite enough. So Lord, help us to be wise and do what Jesus said and to follow you with our heart, mind, soul, and strength, um, that there's nothing that comes in the way of that, to love our neighbor as ourself, and that those are things that we're independently responsible for and that we'll be held account to. Uh, Lord, when you make things right and you, you rub everything level in the world and you bring justice to the world, Lord, may we be uh, your servants. May there be just nothing to rub out because we've given our lives and dedicated our lives to service, not for our gain, but for our salvation, Lord. We seek your intervention to take care of anything. We know our works don't amount to anything. So Lord, we just ask for you to be in our hearts, be in our lives, be our salvation Um, that we cannot attain on our own, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.